The sound of applause spilled out of the Dirksen building at the U.S. Capitol on March 23, 2004. Senators from both sides of the aisle joined officials from the Unification Church in welcoming a man who called himself their savior, 84-year-old Sun Myung Moon. The atmosphere of the event, billed as a peace banquet, shifted as Moon took the stage to give a rousing speech in Korean. He told the attendees he was their true parent and humanity's messiah. He claimed he'd contacted the spirits of Lenin, Hitler, and Stalin from beyond the grave. He assured the audience that he'd reformed them all so they could be reincarnated as better people. That was shocking enough, but it wasn't what grabbed headlines. The real show started when Illinois Democratic Representative Danny K. Davis approached the stage. He held a delicate pillow topped with one of two golden crowns. The crowd watched with a mixture of awe and confusion as the crowns were placed on Moon and his wife, Hak Ja Han. You heard that right. Sun Myung Moon and his wife were coronated at the U.S. Capitol with dozens of lawmakers looking on. Many of them later insisted they'd been duped into going to the ceremony, believing it to be an ordinary banquet. Whatever their reasons, it was just another day in the life of Reverend Moon. And honestly, it probably wouldn't even crack the top 10 in a list of his most bizarre moments. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is the third episode in our four-part deep dive into the Unification Church, once commonly known as the Moonies. Over the next two weeks, we'll follow the church's history as it goes from a controversial Korean religious movement to a massive organization with followers all around the world and an influential political body. Last week, we followed leader Sun Myung Moon as his Unification Church entered a period of rapid growth. From launching major business ventures to making prominent political contacts, Moon laid the groundwork for a global empire. This week, we'll hear how Moon continues to reach for the stars, but hits turbulence instead. As the Unification Church doubles down on its recruitment efforts in the U.S., Moon learns that great influence comes with great scrutiny. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. 
Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. In 1971, Sun Myung Moon came to the United States. In 1973, he became a permanent resident and his family joined him. It was a big clan. In the 11 years since Moon and his second wife, Hak Cha Han, married, they had nine children. One of their sons passed away shortly after birth. But Moon's true family included all of his followers in the Unification Church. By then, he had missionaries in dozens of countries, including the U.S. For several years, he'd been sending people stateside to lay the groundwork for expansion. Although the movement there was still young, it was pretty expansive, with intentions to install small branches in every state. While Moon's disciples tried to spread his teachings far and wide, church higher-ups cultivated connections with important politicians in both the U.S. and South Korea. Moon had come a long way from the small Korean village of his birth, but it still wasn't enough. In fact, Moon was just getting started. He meant it when he said he was destined to change the world. He believed that becoming well-known in the U.S. was the next logical step in making that happen, and he wanted to make a splash as soon as possible. With that in mind, he prioritized shoring up as much support as he could. He began by planning massive rallies in seven major U.S. venues, starting in New York City. Moon didn't mind all the traveling. He was constantly on the move anyway, coordinating the worldwide branches of his church. Moon saw the U.S. tour as a coming-out party of sorts. While he was used to giving sermons to his congregants, this would be his first time speaking publicly in front of so many uninitiated people. He knew it would be an uphill battle, and he was determined to succeed. He booked some pretty large venues and needed to fill as many seats as possible. That meant he had to sell a lot of tickets, or more accurately, his followers had to sell a lot of tickets. In January 1972, Moon gathered about 80 disciples from around the country to serve as salespeople. He bused these volunteers, who he called pioneers, to New York. There, they underwent some brief training on hawking tickets. However, things didn't go quite so well at first. Up to that point, his unification missionaries hadn't been very unified. Though satellite branches were set up throughout the country, they mostly operated independently. So, not only did the volunteers not know one another, but they also had differing views on the Unification Church itself. According to one pioneer, the trainees disagreed on how best to follow Moon's teachings. It wasn't easy to work together when everyone was concerned with their own place in heaven. Making things even more difficult, Moon insisted on an all-or-nothing approach. He'd booked three nights at Lincoln Center and decided customers either had to pay $18 to hear him speak on all three dates or they couldn't get a ticket at all. It's no surprise that morale dipped quickly. It was a tough sell to ask New Yorkers to take a chance on a multi-night commitment, especially because Sun Myung Moon and the Unification Church didn't have much name recognition in the U.S. at the time. In the end, less than 500 people actually showed up to Lincoln Center. The church blamed bad weather, but the truth was they got similar results elsewhere. In Washington, a blizzard left a busload of Moon's pioneers stuck on the side of the road. The only real win came at the final stop of the tour in Berkeley, California. Thanks to pleasant weather and some extra preparation time, the church managed to fill the Berkeley Center. Moon triumphantly walked onto the stage to the cheers of around 700 people. 
To be fair, though, by that point, tickets for all three nights had gone from $18 to $6. Still, he got some good press in the local papers after the event. He'd managed to snag a PR win by the skin of his teeth, but the difficulties he had in launching the tour showed him he needed to organize better. Over the next couple of years, he worked to coordinate his U.S. followers and establish more reliable infrastructure. To really get things going, Moon devoted a lot of his resources to increasing the church's income. One of the biggest developments that came on the heels of the 1972 tour was the creation of mobile fundraising teams. Essentially, these were platoons of buses that traveled around the country transporting door-to-door salespeople. When they hopped off, Moon's volunteers pounded the pavement selling candles and eventually other trinkets to raise funds for the church. It wasn't a very sophisticated strategy, but Moon had the manpower to make it work. For nearly two months, almost every one of his U.S. followers was asked to drop everything and sell candles. The money they brought in secured the down payment on a volunteer training center in New York. Although their financial situation was a little less tight, it wasn't nearly enough to sustain Moon's ambitious plans. For that, the church needed dedicated factories that could produce thousands of candles each day. These handicrafts became the backbone of the group's early success in the United States. While his followers scrambled to raise capital, Moon himself was preoccupied with spreading his political influence. He knew he had to ally with the status quo in Washington to continue to make headway in the country. So he played to a tune he knew politicians couldn't resist, their own. Moon already had a major in with the political establishment. After all, he shared a common goal with many U.S. policymakers, the complete overthrow of communism. At the time, the country was caught in the full throes of the Cold War. Anyone associated with the Soviet Union or communism was seen as a potential threat to national security at best, and part of an evil global conspiracy at worst. Moon didn't pull punches. He wasn't afraid to put all that candle money where his mouth was. For years now, he'd been pouring funds into supporting anti-communist organizations like the Freedom Leadership Foundation. These channels helped raise his political clout, and he even secured private meetings with several congressmen. That may not sound like such a big deal, but for the Unification Church, it was staggering. While Moon had worked diligently to spread missionaries to all 50 states, he was still far from famous. The average American had never heard of his church. And in all, his 1972 tour only attracted a couple thousand attendees. Yet some of the most influential people in the nation were still willing to meet with Moon. That was more than many better-known religious leaders could say. Thanks to strategic alliances, patience, and good old-fashioned determination, Moon made leaps and bounds up the political ladder. And it wasn't long before he finally started to get the recognition he craved. In late 1973, he embarked on yet another U.S. tour, three times the size of the last one. For this one, his church was better coordinated and better prepared. They blasted slick ads to radio stations around the country and sold tickets well in advance. Moon managed to get major newspaper coverage and a lot more eyes and ears on his teachings as a result. His spotlight had become bright enough to earn him formal congratulations from powerful leaders, like the mayor of New York and a few congresspeople. However, the newfound recognition also invited more scrutiny, largely because of Moon's position on the Watergate scandal. During Moon's first tour, five burglars were arrested at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. President Richard Nixon and his administration initially denied involvement, 
But by 1974, the truth had come out. Nixon worked to cover up the robbery and lied to the American people. The public was outraged. They demanded the president resign or otherwise be impeached. Before long, there was practically no one left on Nixon's side. No one except Sun Myung Moon. It was clear that Nixon had, at the very least, breached the nation's trust. And Moon didn't really deny that. But he argued the American people should do the Christian thing and forgive their president anyway. His unflagging support won Moon a meeting with Nixon himself in February 1974. Then, that July, Moon and his followers held a three-day prayer vigil outside the Capitol building. Hundreds of Unification Church members crowded together to plead for forgiveness and understanding. Some waved signs that read, God bless President Nixon. To most of the country, the church's antics were either bizarre or downright insulting. But as one of the only public figures standing with Nixon, Moon received outsized coverage in the media. Suddenly, the Unification Church became a household name. Although much of the press was negative, it propelled Moon into the limelight nonetheless. The swell of recognition helped fill stadiums on his next speaking tour. Still, he could tell the backlash was coming. At the Belvedere Hotel near Madison Square Garden, he told his audience that a time bomb was ticking. But even he didn't know how quickly it would blow. Coming up, Tick, tick, boom. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now back to the story. 1974 was a banner year for the Unification Church, Sun Myung Moon's headline-grabbing political views, and well-oiled fundraising machine propelled him to the forefront of the public consciousness. But unfortunately for Moon, many Americans didn't like what they were seeing. In some ways, it was more of the same skepticism he'd faced back in Korea. The Washington Post labeled Moon's movement as a cult. An Orthodox Christian organization called him satanic. And political protesters labeled him a fascist for allying himself with Nixon. Critics did everything they could to obstruct his next speaking tour. They phoned in a fake gas leak at one venue, called a bug exterminator to another, and hurled bricks through the windows of his DC headquarters. But none of that compared to Moon's mounting legal troubles. 
U.S. immigration services refused to renew visas for many unification missionaries. Almost 600 were deported before 1975. As more people became aware of the church's activities, they found themselves stunned by its sheer scale. For example, the church netted around $8 million the previous year. Considering its nationwide reach and aggressive fundraising, the number wasn't really all that surprising. But for the average American, who only learned about Moon and his church in the midst of the Watergate scandal, the total was astounding. And since he led a foreign religious group, his political ties were subject to even more salacious rumors. As always, Moon refused to slow down, no matter how loud his critics yelled. In 1975, he courted more controversy when he officiated a mass wedding for 1,801 couples back in South Korea. It was quite a jump from his first ceremony, which only featured 33 couples. And Moon didn't waste his time in Seoul. After the wedding, he held a political rally in opposition to North Korean leader Kim Il-sung. The church ordered over 1,500 buses to bring in visitors from all over South Korea. Hundreds of thousands showed up, with some estimates clearing one million attendees. The turnout was truly incredible, a testament both to Moon's vast political influence and the powerful anti-communist sentiment around the nation. Clearly, the church retained a strong foothold in his home country and places like Japan. Back in the United States, however, it was feeling the weight of public skepticism. Although recruitment numbers lagged, Moon's expectations certainly didn't. Every American convert was expected to bring in at least one additional full-time member per month. It was, simply put, an impossible goal. As time went on, evangelists were put under more and more pressure. Some even left the church because of it. On top of all that, the media backlash had grown vicious. Reports swirled of bright young men and women giving up on their education to raise money for the church. Parents feared their children were being radicalized to fight communism back on the Korean peninsula. Some of the rhetoric painted Moon as an all but apocalyptic threat. Relatives of Moon's followers, along with some ex-members, started to believe the church was brainwashing people into joining. Rogue groups tried to, quote, deprogram people who belonged to the church. Spurred on by family members, a few of these groups actually abducted Moon's followers and tried to force them to leave the movement. In one case, a higher-up of the Brooklyn branch of the church, Dr. Andrew Wilson, was kidnapped, taken to Canada, and locked in a deprogramming house for a full month. There, he was subjected to hours-long interrogations. At first, the deprogrammer simply tried to reason with Wilson. When that didn't work, he berated Wilson and the church, calling Moon the devil and a snake. Finally, Wilson's parents were called in to plead with him personally. Wilson soon realized he had little choice in the matter. He told his parents and the deprogrammer what they wanted to hear. Once the guards became more lax, he tried and failed to escape several times. In the end, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had to intervene. His story was just one of many. Another family tried to get a court order to force their daughter out of the church. A psychiatrist named Dr. John Clark testified on their behalf, claiming Moon's organization robbed its followers of their free will. In the end, the judge dismissed the case because he felt the Unification Church's recruitment tactics were similar to those of most other major religions. Still, the bad press continued to roll in. It got even worse when some former members told journalists that they actually had been brainwashed. The church denied the claims, maintaining that members joined of their own free will. 
In hindsight, the brainwashing accusations were probably overblown. Some media outlets vastly overestimated the number of actual church members feeding into the public's paranoia. Plus, many recruits left the movement within a few years of joining, so it seems like they had some semblance of free will. Though Moon himself didn't face any legal consequences for these claims, the church's reputation completely tanked. Membership in the U.S. dwindled, and the public was on high alert. It seemed like things couldn't get any worse, but they did. It turned out that the U.S. wasn't the only country with a major anti-Moon faction. In January 1976, a Paris mansion that housed Unification Church members was bombed. Two people were seriously injured in the blast. Moon tried his best to counter the critics, but there wasn't much he could do to stem the onslaught of negative press coverage. To most, his religious beliefs were either strange or blasphemous. Let's not forget, he claimed to be God's chosen successor to Jesus Christ. His followers referred to him as their true father. An ego like that didn't garner him much sympathy. And unbeknownst to Moon, a different kind of storm brewed on the horizon. In late 1976, a House subcommittee launched a probe into accusations that the South Korean government was trying to buy influence in the United States. A wealthy businessman, Tong Soon Pak, was at the center of the scandal. Pak allegedly made a deal with the South Korean government. He would try to convince U.S. congressmen to grant South Korea more military aid. In return, he would be the only one allowed to profit from sales of U.S. rice to Korea. To gain the influence he promised, Pak was later accused of passing money and gifts to several U.S. legislators. One lawmaker, California's Richard Hanna, served a year in prison for taking upwards of $200,000 from Pak. During the probe, the Congressional Committee honed in on the Unification Church, asking members pointed questions about their possible connections to the Korean political establishment. The entire affair lasted until 1978. Bribery charges against Pak were dropped in exchange for immunity and agreeing to testify before Congress about his ventures. Since it came in the wake of Watergate, the media seized on the scandal and quickly named it Koreagate, though it was never quite as salacious. In the end, few people faced legal ramifications for their involvement. As the inquiry continued, however, several prominent South Korean figures were implicated, including Sun Myung Moon. As we mentioned in the last episode, Moon and the Unification Church adamantly deny cooperating with the South Korean government to further their political aims. But the former director of the KCIA, Kim Hyung-wook, disputes these claims. He explicitly named Moon an intelligence asset. According to the New York Times, Kim implied that Moon wasn't a major player within the intelligence agency, even claiming the KCIA didn't fully trust him. Still, the agency may have seen his church's efforts as useful propaganda tools for spreading Korean culture and influence in the U.S. It's also possible his followers were used to advance the KCIA's goals. U.S. intelligence reports reveal that the KCIA planned to recruit Unification Church members to stage a protest in the U.S. According to one ex-Korean agent, Moon's disciples were bused to Washington in 1974, but apparently the operation was called off before the demonstration ever began. Even so, the U.S. intelligence report stated the Unification Church had taken money from the KCIA at least once. That was to hold a rally in support of Korean policy goals. 
The full truth of the matter was never revealed, because right before the subcommittee issued a subpoena compelling Sun Myung Moon to testify in front of Congress, he traveled to London. Moon stayed away from the U.S. for several years and never testified. He had plenty of other things to keep him busy. The barrage of negative publicity and political scandals cost the church millions in legal fees and marketing initiatives. Despite all the fundraising, there just weren't enough church members in the U.S. to cover the costs. But Moon didn't want to give up on his dreams. He still believed securing a foothold in the U.S. was an absolute requirement to fulfilling his destiny of uniting Christians around the world. So, while he was out of the country, he subsidized U.S. operations with money earned elsewhere. The Unification Church in Japan, in particular, was reportedly thriving. In 1984, two former Japanese church officials told the Washington Post that a conglomerate called Happy World Inc. was controlled by the Unification Church. They claimed that Happy World employed Moon's followers as salespeople in Japan, miniature pagodas, and other bric-a-brac door-to-door. The church's director of public relations responded to these claims by saying, our view is that the Unification Church has nothing to do with sales activities. We don't know what each church member is doing, but as a church, we don't do any sales. Happy World is a different company, a totally separate organization. One ex-member claimed that Japanese churchgoers track potential customers down by reading obituaries. They would reportedly tell family members that their loved ones had contacted the church from beyond the grave. Supposedly, the only way for the deceased relative to pass into the spirit world was to buy one of the trinkets or donate some cash. This technique seemed to work well, and as the 70s turned to the 80s, Moon decided to expand his other money-making enterprises too. By 1984, the portfolio of businesses that either he or the Unification Church owned was enormous. These included a massive luxury hotel in Uruguay, rented office space in Washington, D.C., fishing boats and processing plants, and four South Korean manufacturing companies. One of those was a large weapons manufacturer. Hundreds of millions were being sent to the U.S., all to support a dwindling membership. While the church claimed to have tens of thousands of followers there, outside estimates indicated that number was likely between 2,000 and 5,000. In Moon's mind, it was all worth it. Despite a poll that found he was one of the most hated men in America in the late 70s, he refused to give up on making it in the U.S. of A. So, in 1981, when he was indicted by a U.S. grand jury on charges of tax evasion, he faced a difficult choice. He could return to the States to face trial and possible conviction, or he could remain abroad and be barred from safely returning for the foreseeable future. Coming up, Sun Myung Moon makes a less than triumphant return. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. 
with 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and six times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now back to the story. On October 15, 1981, Sun Myung Moon was charged in New York with willfully filing false tax returns from 1973 to 1975. The accusations came while Moon was abroad during a spell of bad publicity. In the end, he chose to return to the U.S. to stand trial. Even in the midst of the hearing, or perhaps because of it, Moon dedicated himself to growing his political influence. He believed he wasn't getting a fair shake from the Washington press, and in all honesty, he probably wasn't, considering the brainwashing accusations. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. In May of 1982, he founded the Washington Times, a conservative daily newspaper. Moon spared no expense getting his broadsheet off the ground. He courted established journalists and major media voices to lend his project credibility. Considering his reputation, some of the reporters had reservations about working with Moon. But for those who were between jobs, it was a purely practical move. Either way, it was a win for Moon. He used an arm of the Unification Church, News World Communications, Inc., to fund the burgeoning media empire. His right-hand man, Colonel Bo Hee Pak, served as the president of the company. We mentioned Colonel Pak in the last episode. He once worked as a liaison for the KCIA in Washington, D.C., before resigning to head a Korean cultural foundation. Since then, Pak stood by Moon's side, unwavering in the face of scandal after scandal. And it was a good thing he didn't scare easy, because in May of that year, Moon was convicted of tax evasion and sentenced to 18 months in prison. In the interim, Pak took charge of the entire Unification Church. Even with the weight of the world on his shoulders, Pak never swayed. Despite being implicated in the Koreagate scandal and facing nonstop criticism for his work, he adamantly believed Moon was the world's true father. He was willing to grit his teeth and bear anything for the church. And we do mean anything. On September 23, 1984, Pak planned a pleasant night out with an acquaintance in New York. They met at a hotel and the two got in a car to go to dinner. The moment Pak climbed inside, several men pulled guns on him. They blindfolded him and sped away, whisking him off to a farmhouse about 50 miles north. It was pure extortion. The men knew Pog had access to plenty of money through the church. They threatened to hurt the colonel and his family unless he agreed to wire them $1 million. When Pog refused, they shocked him, beat him, and fired guns into the air to intimidate him. After two long days of torture, Pog finally agreed and gave them the money. The gunman flew him to Washington, where he sent $500,000 to a Swiss account as an initial payment. Pak was shaken up by the experience and didn't immediately go to the authorities. But unbeknownst to him, the FBI was already on the case. When the agency realized he made it back to D.C., they canceled the money transfer and started making arrests. In November, six Korean nationals were charged with the kidnapping. One was acquitted and three more agreed to testify against the others in exchange for getting the charges dropped. Of the remaining kidnappers, one was sentenced to 15 years in prison. It must have been a nightmare, but buoyed by the knowledge that Moon believed in him, Pak made it through. In 1985, his leader was released on good behavior after serving 13 months of his prison sentence. 
Moon promptly returned to his formal role as head of the church, along with an endless list of other responsibilities. For instance, coming up with ideas for new business ventures. When it came to being an entrepreneur, Moon had a bit of a mixed record. It would take hours to sort through all the various enterprises he experimented with, ranging from a ballet company to a chinchilla ranch. He wasn't afraid to take risks, and they didn't all bear fruit. But by 1985, there was finally some good news. Sushi was taking the U.S. by storm. Over the previous decade, the cuisine had become increasingly popular in the States. To some, it was trendy. To others, it was a status symbol, something that made them feel worldly and sophisticated. And Moon stood in the perfect position to take advantage of the craze. Because for years, he'd been investing in fishing boats, processing plants, and salespeople. They were managed by a company called Unification Church International. Despite its name, it claims to be distinct, and it is a separate legal entity. In fact, it's still in operation today, though you might know it as True World Group. Originally, Moon had his fish pioneers travel around in refrigerated vans selling seafood door-to-door. They were also tasked with evangelizing for the Unification Church at the same time. By now, you may have noticed a pattern. Moon's ideas typically involved door-to-door sales in some capacity or another. He had a gift for connecting with people one-on-one, and he expected his fishmongers to be able to do the same. Eventually, though, that plan was altered, and Moon had his salespeople focus on restaurants and other retail outlets instead. Since fish wasn't traditionally a staple of the American diet, there weren't many other companies around offering fresh catches at that kind of scale. The more popular sushi got, the bigger their market share became. As of 2021, as True World Group, the company claims it serves about 60% of sushi restaurants in the greater New York City area. The New York Times calls it the largest revenue-generating for-profit subsidiary of Unification Church International. This complicated, interconnected web of business ventures is part of what makes Sun Myung Moon so fascinating. He started by founding a tiny fringe religious group in post-war Korea. A couple of decades later, his church had members all over the world. But that was just the beginning. To be clear, many of Moon's businesses, including True World Group, are legally distinct from the Unification Church, and they don't necessarily work in tandem. Separate from his religious pursuits, Moon managed to establish a global empire that included a media arm, manufacturing and food businesses, and seemingly everything in between. And while these companies might not be directly connected to the church, in practice they provided material support for his devotees. As you would expect, Moon's companies hired many of his followers, who believed he was a second messiah. And his practice of arranging marriages within the church allowed Japanese and Korean members to marry internationally and immigrate to other countries. Some of those people ended up opening sushi restaurants or helping on the fishing boats or working at his newspaper. On top of that, Moon had forged political connections with some of the most powerful people in the world. Despite being publicly mocked for his religious beliefs and dismissed by the vast majority of the public, Moon and his allies were still able to leverage their success. Decades of hard work, determination, and strategic moves helped the Unification Church persist against all odds. It's not really possible to definitively say how much of an impact political relationships have had on that success. Still, like it or not, it's hard to call it anything other than a triumph. And as always, Moon had his sights set even higher. However, after his release from prison in 1985, the 65-year-old seemed to take a step back from public life 
Whether it was because he was getting older, wanted to enjoy his success, or just because the time had passed, he featured in the headlines less often. That's not to say he was a complete stranger to controversy. In the early 90s, he managed to speak with Mikhail Gorbachev before the fall of the Soviet Union. He followed that up with a highly publicized meeting with North Korean President Kim Il-sung to, in his mind, talk some sense into the communists. The meetings seemed to be mostly tepid political affairs, but Moon used them to further his unification rhetoric. If he, one of the biggest anti-communists in the world, could have a civil meeting with a North Korean leader, then he felt everyone else should be able to get along too. But that wasn't always the case in his own family. As Moon receded into the background of the Unification Church, he left a power vacuum behind. Considering a core tenet of his philosophy was to raise the ideal Christian family, it was a no-brainer who would take his place. His wife, Hak Ja Han, started giving public appearances more often in the early 90s. In 1992, she founded the Women's Federation for World Peace. From there, she became involved in some charitable organizations. There was a clear shift as she started to be treated as Moon's equal in the church, rather than a background figure. That change culminated in the infamous 2004 ceremony in the U.S. Capitol, where Moon and his wife were crowned in front of dozens of lawmakers. The event was met with a lot of curiosity, but ultimately faded away as a bizarre publicity stunt. The moons were known to be eccentric, and few seriously believed that U.S. legislators revered them as monarchs. As weird as the ceremony appeared, though, it was just the tip of the iceberg. As Moon's power waned, some of his adult children stepped up to take his place. And it turned out they intended to take things further than their father ever did. Even their parents would be shocked by what they were planning. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part four on the Unification Church. We'll follow Sun Myung Moon's empire on a new trajectory as his family tries to fill some very big shoes. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Travis Clark. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.